Pastors Michael and Brenda Brunzo welcome you and thank you for listening to the following message. This message was recorded during a regular service at Faith Fellowship Church. The Bible tells us in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So we believe this message will encourage and strengthen you in your daily walk of faith. God bless you as you listen. Welcome, Facebook family. Glad to have you with us this morning. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, turn to Numbers, the 13th chapter. Numbers chapter 13. I want to talk to you about walking in the steps of faith this morning. Walking in the steps of faith. How many knows, according to Hebrews 11:6, without faith it is impossible. Not hard, not unlikely, but impossible to please God. We have to have faith in order to please God. And my good friend, Pastor Flynn, in Freeport, Illinois, was telling us Wednesday night that he says, when the Lord returns to the earth, will he find faith in the earth? Isn't it funny how one of the first things he's going to be looking for is faith? Amen. He's not going to be looking for the size of the ministry you built or the size of your uh, prosperity and how well you've been doing He's going to be looking for faith. That's what he's interested in, faith. So I want to talk to you today about walking in the steps of that very faith, having it when the Lord comes. In Numbers 13, 1, uh, Israel was on the brink of the promised land, and the Lord spoke to Moses and said this, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe... (coughs) Send one of its leaders. There was 12 tribes of Israel, one leader from each tribe. That means there's going to be 12 men going in to spy out the land. So at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out from the desert of Paran. All of them were leaders of the Israelites. And then I want to skip down to verse 17 in the same chapter. And it says in 17, when Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, go up through the Negev and on into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees in it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. It was the season for the first ripe grapes. So they went up and explored the land from the desert of Zin as far as Rehob toward Labo Hamath. And they went up through the Negev and came to Hebron where Ahiman, Sheshiah, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, lived. Hebron had, built, had been built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. When they reached the valley of Eshkol, the valley of Eshkol uh, Eskol simply means in the Hebrew language, bunch of grapes. They cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them, along with some pomegranates and figs. And that place was called the Valley of Eskol because of the cluster of grapes the Israelites cut off there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. Now, I don't know how big these grapes were. But it took two men to carry him on a stick. Amen? 
But why did God choose this particular piece of land? What's so important about this ground? You know, God had this land in mind from the beginning of time. It had to be this piece of land. It was that important. But what's so special about it? Uh, we already knew that uh, Israel was God's chosen people, but I never realized till recently that God also had a chosen land for his chosen people. And it had to be this particular land. I mean, there was, there was a lot of other places they could have went in and possessed. There was a lot of other places that they could have lived. But God said this particular piece of land. And I realize there's more significance to this piece of land than meets the eye. God just gave them the first step to his plan. And that's the way God works. He gives you a step. Uh, it's like a puzzle. You get one piece to the puzzle, and until you fit that in, you don't get another piece. Until you take the first step God gave you, you don't get another step. So he has this chosen land for them to, lo to live in, and uh, he knows the end from the beginning. He's the Alpha and the Omega, so he knows everything that's going to happen before it actually happens. He gets the big picture. You know how when you're putting a puzzle together, you always lay the top of the box alongside of you because it's got a picture of the puzzle. Well, God's got the picture, but he didn't give it to us. And, and we have to trust him for the next piece, for the next step. And then, uh, to be honest, Israel couldn't pro probably couldn't handle the whole plan of God. If he would have gave them the whole plan, if he would have showed them the box top, they would have probably never went in. They would have given up right there because it would look impossible to us to see the big picture, to see everything that God has planned for us. But if he gives it to us one piece at a time, uh, one step at a time, it's easy for us to comprehend and grow as we're going along. Amen. And, uh, but this is where God teaches them and teaches us to walk in faith and to learn how to trust and rely on him. Uh, we have to trust him for the next step, trust him for the next piece to the puzzle. And that's why he only gives us one piece of the puzzle, one step at a time. In Romans 4.12, it tells us that we are to walk in the same steps of our father Abraham. Now, some people might think this is talking to the Jews, but according to Galatians chapter 3, he's our spiritual father. So he's talking to us, too. And, and he's telling us to walk in the same steps of our father Abraham. And it's actually talking about Abraham before God made a covenant with him. Abraham was walking in faith then before he had a covenant, which is really difficult to do. Because when you have a covenant, you know what you're entitled to. You know what you've been promised. You don't even have to believe God for it. If he said it, he'll do it. Amen. But when you don't have a covenant, you don't know what your rights and promises are. It's harder to walk in steps of faith. And that's the steps of faith that God wants us to walk in, the same as our father Abraham. And this is where he teaches us to walk in the steps of faith, in the wilderness, in our experiences, in going into the promised land and possessing it. This is where we learn how to walk in faith. And notice, he didn't say leaps and bounds. He said steps. If you go to Romans 4.12, you, you will not find leaps and bounds in there anywhere. It will say steps. So we're to walk in steps of faith. And where most people fail in their faith walk is when they get ahead of God by skipping steps. God don't want us to skip steps. 
And if he gives you step one, you will not get step two until you complete step one. Amen. And right now, their step number one was to go into the land and recon it. Just see what's in the land. Don't stir any, uh, any trouble up. Don't sneak up on any of the people that are in the land. Don't even let yourself be seen. I just want you to see the land and then come back and report. Amen. So uh, God told Israel, pick 12 men, the heads of the 12 tribes or leaders of the 12 tribes, and go into the land, spy it out, and see what the land was like. Are the people who live there strong or weak? Are they many or few? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they fortified or without walls? What was the land itself like? Is it hilly or flat? Are there forests or plains? Is it, uh, has it got trees in it? What kind of trees? Just get all the information that you can gra- uh, gather. But notice this. He didn't send them in to conquer it at this time. That was coming, but that's another step. He, he gave them the first step was to go in and check it out, nothing more. And I believe that God was setting precedence for all future conquests for Israel. And he's teaching us not to make life-changing decisions until we collect all the information we need pertaining to that decision. Don't do anything until you get all the information that you have Develop a strategy based on that information and then make a decision. We should never buy a house or a car until you gather information. Know what kind of car you want. Know what that car has got in it. Does it have everything you need? Uh, What's the value of that car? How much should I pay? What's the high end? What's the low end? What's the median range of that? I need all the information about that car. Check the, uh, what they call that report you get, the Fox report or whatever. But uh, anyway, you get this report, tells you the history of the car if it's a used one. And if it's a new one, you still have the history of the repairs on it, what, what's the major issues on it. Get that information before you buy it. And, and you should never change jobs without gathering information. You know, I, I've talked to people that were bent on changing jobs, and I knew it wasn't a good idea because they were looking at the hourly wage. But they didn't consider the cost of the benefits like the insurance and the paid vacations and and the uh, graduated or scheduled raises and stuff, you know. Yeah, it looked good at first, but if they would have added up the benefits that they had at their job, you know, I used to make $21 an hour driving a truck. But it was costing my employer like $460 a week for my health and welfare. But anyway, long story short, when you added all that stuff to your hourly wage, I was making 35 bucks an hour. So you could tell me, well, there's a job over here for $28 an hour. You should take it. No medical, no uh, pension, no nothing. So it was $28, period. I thank God I stayed with the job I had because now I have a pension. Uh, I had health care the whole time that I was working, you know, so... Uh, it, it, you got to have the information before you make a decision that's going to change your life. Amen? You shouldn't get married until you gather information about the person you're going to marry. And you shouldn't have children until you uh, gather all the information you need about children. Because, in other words, you should never make any major decisions until you gather all the information that's available about that decision you're going to make. You need to spy out the land and then develop a strategy. Number one, pick your battles. And you may not want to 
take the land at this time. It might not be a good time to take the land. You're not ready for it. You ain't ready for that house. You're not ready for marriage. You're not ready to, to raise children. So you might find that out in your information gathering. And, and uh, it's probably one of the main reasons that p- most people fail in their endeavors is because they didn't collect enough information to make a good decision in the first place. And the houses and cars are repossessed. People are miserable after they change jobs. Marriages are failing. Parents are overwhelmed by their children, both, uh, you know, economically and with the problems that they have with children at different ages. And when you talk to them, one of the first things they say is, if I only knew. Well, you could have known. The information was there. You just didn't gather it. And now you're stuck with whatever you made a, a bad decision on. You know, successful CEOs of great corporations, they hold meetings in, uh, with their department heads and their staff and everything. And when they're about to make a big change or a big decision on something, they get all the information that they can. And after they got all the information and they process it, then they develop a strategy. Then they decide if they want to do it or not do it. Then they decide how they're going to go about it. And then they lay out a final plan. And then they go about it like that. Uh, I don't know of any department or uh, CEOs that would make a major decision without consulting with the rank and file, without re- uh, consulting with the, their staff and their corporate or their heads of the different departments and stuff. But God didn't send the 12 spies into the land for his benefit. God already knew everything that was needed to know about the land. God already knew it was a land that flowed with milk and honey. But he had to sell it to the Israelites. He had to get a vision into them of that land. He sent them into the land for their benefit so that they would see what the land was like. And God knew exactly what the land was like, but he's trying to impart vision into Israel. And that's exactly what he does for us. He wants us to see the wonderful things that he has for us. He wants us to see the promises that he has for us. And he wants us to show us, he wants to show us how great he is. Yeah. And he wants to impact our life in a way that is going to benefit us and give us something to look forward to and something to strive for. He's trying to get us to set goals for ourselves. And that comes through vision. And God knew he couldn't get the promised land, uh, or God knew if he couldn't get the promised land in Israel, he would have never got Israel into the promised land. And that's where Israel failed, because they went into the promised land, and with the exception of two men, Joshua and Caleb, none of them could, could catch the vision of them living in that land. Joshua and Caleb did. They were picking out property. Caleb knew he wanted a particular mountain in that land. He said, and when they did finally go in 86 years later, Caleb says to Joshua, give me this mountain. And and Caleb's 80-something years old, and Joshua tells him, well, you stay with us, and you help us conquer the land for everybody else, and then you could have that mountain. He said, okay, and he did it, and and Caleb possessed his mountain. Amen? I mean, uh, can, can you get a vision for healing? God wants us to have a vision for healing. He wants you to go in and possess it. Jesus healed us over 2,000 years ago. He's not going to take those stripes on his back again. It's up to us to go in and possess that land. Healing is ours. The promised land was theirs. They had to go in and possess it. 
They had to conquer it. And sometimes that's the way it is with us with healing. We have to go in and possess it. It already belongs to us. I have a covenant of healing. But I have to go in and possess it. And I'm going to tell you, that's exactly what I did this week. I got hit on Wednesday. I'm telling you, I had to get better to die. And, and I just kept quoting the word. And I knew healing was mine. I knew Jesus bore them stripes on his back for my healing. And I just kept going in and possessing it. I kept denying the devil and, and just possessing my healing. And, and uh, this morning, I feel great. I got a little residue left. But, uh, and you know, the devil will talk to you, boy, oh, you got COVID. You're going to die. You're 72 years old. You can't handle it. Get under my feet where you belong. Amen. And, and, and I'm telling you, I kicked his butt this way. I'm sorry to be so plain, but I can't say it any, uh, uh, any better way. I kicked his butt this week. Amen. I possess what belongs to me. Hallelujah. And then, you know, God wants us to get a, a vision for prosperity. He don't want us to live in lack. He don't want us to lack any good things. But we got to get a vision for it, and then we got to do whatever it takes to possess it. Maybe even get a job. I, for some people, it's just getting a job. That's part of you possessing what God has, has made available to you. Amen? How about, can you get a vision for a successful marriage? Can you get a vision for going back to school at your age and graduating? I mean, God wants us to have a vision, and then he wants us to go in and possess that vision. Set some goals and go in and get it. Can you get a vision for a successful business? you got to have a vision. That's what's going to motivate you to get what you want. And he wants us to go in and possess all of his promises. God didn't make promises for nothing. He wants us to possess those promises. He's already paid the price. But we have to go in and possess it. He's already given us the land, but we have to go in and possess it. We have to take what we want out of that land. He gives us the wisdom we need to do it. He gives us the knowledge we need to do it. He gives us the strength, and he always provides everything that we need. He will never give us a vision that we can't fulfill. Amen. Amen. And he'll never give us a vision uh, that we can fulfill without him. We need him to fulfill our visions to the fullest potential. Uh, he wanted them to envision themselves living in the land. He wanted them to catch the vision. He wanted them to go in the land and say, yeah, I can see my house on that hill right there. I'll draw water from that brook right there. I'm planting a vineyard here. I'm going to put up a fence here for my cattle. Yeah, I'm going to have a porch that faces the setting sun. Uh, yeah, I can do this. I can, I can see myself living here. And once that got that vision, there wasn't nothing stop them. Caleb and, and Joshua got it, but the other ten didn't. And God said that those ten brought back an evil report. But he told them to bring samples of the fruit that was in the land. Show everyone in Israel how fruitful the land was because he wanted them to catch a vision too. They didn't go in. He was counting on the spies to bring back a good report and proof of the fruit of the land. So they'd catch a vision. And, and the food he instructed them to bring out was highly symbolic. Grapes are highly symbolic for blood. That was the first thing he said, get some grapes, bring some grapes. And, and not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament, see, we, we receive communion 
every first Sunday of the month. And, and, and what do we drink? Grape juice or wine, which is the fruit of the grape. And, and what is this symbolic of? The blood of Christ. And so that's what those grapes represented. In Deuteronomy 32, 14, God calls wine the blood of the grapes. The blood of the grapes. So those grapes represented the blood of Jesus. God was saying to Israel that one of the reasons this particular land was so important to him is because it was from this land that he would provide salvation for the entire world. It had to be from that land, that piece of real estate, that God would provide a savior for the entire world. I'm going to tell you why. See, this is the land where he asked Abraham to offer his son Isaac upon a mountain in that land called Moriah. And then God says, I stayed his hand because all I wanted to do was set precedence because I would be sacrificing my son in this land and on this hill. I didn't want, I didn't want Abraham's only son to be sacrificed, only son of the covenant to be sacrificed. This was to set precedence so that I could sacrifice my son here. My son is going to be crucified here. And Abraham saw into the future that day, and he seen Christ being provided. He seen Christ being crucified, and he called that hill Jehovah-Jireh. And Jehovah-Jireh in the Hebrew means the Lord that sees the need in advance and supplies it. He's a God that provides. He's a provider. So Abraham seen that in the spirit. He seen God was going to provide the sacrifice, and that ram in the bush was symbolic of God's uh, uh, providing his son at a later date. So Israel's conquering a land that would someday have a city in it called Jerusalem. That was the only place that Jerusalem was going to be, was in that land. God had to conquer that land because that's where Jerusalem was going to be, where Christ had to be crucified and where Christ would one day rule and reign from that city, Jerusalem. God had to have that particular piece of land because, Israel, because Jerusalem was in it. So the hill that Jesus died on, it was called Calvary. It was called Golgotha. But in Abraham's time, it was called Mount Moriah because Jesus was crucified in the exact place that Abraham offered Isaac. Had to be. He set precedence for it there. He said, on this hill, I will provide a sacrifice. And he did. It had to be that hill in that land. Amen? So that's why it's so important for Israel to take this land because Without it, God's son couldn't die in fulfillment of the scriptures. Uh, there would be no salvation in the world if Israel didn't get this piece of land. That's how important it was. Now, I'm going to tell you something here that's really interesting. Jewish rabbis, sages, and religious leaders, along with a lot of Bible scholars, believe that Jesus died on the cross and his blood soaked the same ground that God created Adam from. They believe this. I don't have any biblical evidence of it, but it makes sense because Jesus is called the second Adam because he reversed through his obedience what Adam lost through his disobedience, and it was accomplished on the same ground. In other words, this is where the devil took it, and this is where the devil's going to have to give it back. Amen. God is a God of precedence. And I know a couple things for sure. 
and I can prove it. This land is very special to God for a reason, not just the ones I mentioned. And the other thing I know is that this piece of land is as important to the devil as it is to God. Amen. Now, get a picture of this. Jerusalem, or uh, Israel, is 260 miles wide, 72 miles deep. That's about 8,000 square miles of land. You, and that's about the size of our New Jersey. Compare that with the world. Compare that with the universe. It is, it is a dot. It is like a period at the end of a sentence. That's how small that piece of land is, and yet it's the most sought-after piece of real estate in the universe. I mean, men have fought and died over that piece of real estate, not to even mention Jerusalem, but they have fought and died over that piece of real estate for thousands of years. Why? Because the devil wanted it. He especially wanted it before Christ was crucified because he didn't realize it at the time, but he, he realized it later. Paul said, had he not known, he would have never crucified, or had he known, he would have never crucified the Lord of glory. He didn't know that's the place where Jesus had to die. I mean, we had the prophets, and it was in the scriptures. Isaiah described it perfectly, right to the letter, and yet the devil overlooked it. But he knew, God knew that his son had to be crucified in Jerusalem, or right outside Jerusalem. He had to be sentenced to death from that city. He knows that Christ is coming back and is going to rule from that city. So it was all in the, in the prophecies. It was all in the Old Testament scriptures. And Christ had to fulfill that perfectly. So then the second fruit that they brought out, that was just a little side journey there. It was all free, so I won't charge you for it. But the second fruit they brought out were pomegranates. Now, they were a form or a symbol of worship. The, the grapes were a symbol of the blood of Christ. Pomegranates are a symbol of praise and worship. The high priest had a scepter, uh, you know, his stick that identified him as the one with the authority. And on the end of that scepter was a pomegranate carved out of ivory. And when he raised that scepter, Israel would immediately go into praise and worship. And they start worshiping and praising God. And I mean, it wasn't a little patty cake, you know, clap your hands. It was true praise and true worship. And, and they took it seriously. And, and the pomegranates represented a new and higher form of worship than they've ever experienced before. God was going to raise up a people to worship him in spirit and in truth, and that people is called the body of Christ or the church, and it was in that land that God was going to teach Israel the value of worship and how important it was to him. Worship is important to God. He's not an egomaniac or something, but he wants to be praised. He wants to be worshipped. He wants to be honored. Amen? And he deserves it. You know, a lot of people want that kind of recognition, but they don't deserve it. God earned it. And first and foremost, we have to realize the importance of praise and worship. And we have to realize that praise and worship is more than something that we just do before the preaching happens. You know, it's, it's not a warm-up for the preaching. Praise and worship is for God. That's our purpose here, is to praise and worship God. Because 
Praise and worship draws us closer to God, like Pastorette was saying this morning. You know, people don't know how to get close to God. Put on a CD of praise or worship and raise your hands. Close your eyes in your bedroom, in the living room, and start praising him and start worshiping. And see if he don't come down and inhabit the praises of you. Amen. And, you know, it's... It's in his presence that there's fullness of joy. It's in his presence that we have miracles and, and he moves amongst us. He can't move amongst us if he's not here. And praise and worship will bring him down. It will bring him into our midst. And, and you know, uh, we have a praise and worship team because our primary purpose and the main reason that we're all here is to minister to the Lord. And that's how we do it is through Praise and worship. We minister to him in spirit and in truth. Like Jesus said, he must be worshipped. And our main emphasis is to bless the Lord at all times. Paul said, again, I say, bless the Lord. And the praise and worship portion of the service is where we do that. That's his portion. That's why, you know, we come in here. You need to empty yourself of all the junk that you went through during the week. The argument you had on the way here, what you're going to have for lunch when you leave here, you got to empty yourself of all that because when we enter into praise and worship, that's his time. That's where you spend time in his presence glorifying him. Amen. And then after that, when I get up here and preach, that's your time. Amen. The worship is his time. The preaching is your time. God don't need any preaching. Amen. He, he knows the word. You need the preaching. I need the preaching. But that time of worship is his. And we should get real serious about that. Amen. I know he enjoyed worship this morning because, you know, we acted like we enjoyed praising him. Amen. So, you know, our second purpose in praise and worship is to minister to God's people, to minister to you because as we worship the Lord in spirit and in truth, the congregation has the opportunity to enter in what God calls the secret place. You enter the secret place of the Most High, Psalms 91, through praise and worship. That's how you get in there. You enter his gates with praise and his courts with, with uh, what is it, Ms. Shansh? Thanksgiving. That's how you get in. Amen. And so that's our second purpose. And this enables us to receive further ministry, whether it's from the preaching, the teaching, prophesying, or the gifts of the Spirit. This is the atmosphere that all of this stuff moves in. And, you know, many times in the Old Testament as examples, and all those things were done as examples for us, right? Many times in the Old Testament we see musical worship followed by an immediate move of God, a massive move of God. And, you know, music plays such an important role in spiritual things. And uh, that's why the devil is so good at it. Number one, he was the praise and worship leader in heaven when he was Lucifer. And uh, he knows how music opens the spirits of men. And so, but now he's perverted it and he opens your spirit for all the wrong reasons because he wants to bring uh, wrong spirits into your spirit. But it was originally designed to open your spirit for God to get in. Amen. And God to minister to you. And that's why we always teach you got to be careful of the type of music you listen to because you're opening the doors to spirits that you don't want to deal with. Amen. 
Make sure if you're listening to praise and worship or you're praising and worshiping God to some kind of music, make sure it's the right kind of music. It don't have that devil drum beat to it. It doesn't have, you know, uh, uh, something that will entice the wrong kind of spirits. Amen. In 2 Kings 3.15, Elisha asked for a minstrel. He said, bring me someone who can play the harp. And while the harp was being played, the Bible says the power of the Lord came upon Elisha. God inhabited the praises of Elisha. And then in 2 Chronicles 5, the Bible says, After they sang to the Lord, a thick cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not continue their service because of the cloud, for the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple of God. That would be like us praising God in here, and all of a sudden this thick glory cloud comes in. I can't see you anymore, so I can't minister anymore. Amen? That's how it was in the Old Testament temple when God's glory came in. They couldn't see the minister. And, and you know, the devil fights this kind of worship real hard. Uh, he doesn't want us to praise God like we did this morning. He don't want us to worship God like we should in spirit and in truth. And he uses people's pride to hinder this type of worship. People get all embarrassed when they worship in this manner. Uh, for example, in, at least in Kentucky, I don't know what it is in, in, in Facebook land states, but in Kentucky, the colors are red and blue. So we can put on a red shirt with a cardinal on it or a blue shirt with a wildcat on it on Saturday afternoon and scream at the TV like a maniac and holler at referees as though we think they could hear us, and we don't have a problem with that at all. There ain't nothing wrong with that. But raise your hand in church and say, praise the Lord, and you'd be like, that's weird, man. You, I mean, people don't holler in church, you know. No, I mean, if you could do it over a stupid football, you should be able to do it for God, your Savior, your healer, your provider, Amen. Hallelujah. <laughs> yes. And I was guilty of that stuff, too. I ain't into sports so much anymore. Uh, you know, they had this big deal over the Kansas City-Texas game the other night, and they couldn't understand why they were getting booed. And, and you know, there's a lot of reasons why they were getting booed. Uh, but, you know, the main reason, at least, that came to me, and, and you know, the, the, the news media tilted it, the way they wanted to, but uh, here's, here's what I think. I'm going to pay good money to go to a football game and be entertained because I like sports. I don't want to mix it with politics. I, I don't care what kind of politics they are, left wing, right wing. I paid to see a football game, and that's all I want to see. And so when they started that stuff, hey, we came here to get away from that stuff. We got enough of that stuff in our hometown. We got enough of that stuff in the streets. We got enough protests here. I ain't coming here and paying money to see it. And I think that was the whole thing about it. Amen. I better get back on this. I can't, I don't, I don't want to get political. We still on, Brother Darrell? <laughs> I'll tell you what, I controlled myself Wednesday night because I knew if I said what I wanted to say, I'd been cut off in a minute. Not even a minute. Hallelujah. <laughs> yeah, the devil fights this kind of worship. I mean, you get embarrassed on a Sunday morning after the way you acted Saturday afternoon, 
Don't give me that stuff. That's pride. That's stinking pride. Oh, praise the Lord. I've got more notes than i got time. But the third, thank you, Miss Lord. I think I will. <laughs> the third fruit they brought out of the land also has significant symbolic meaning. It was a cluster of figs. And figs represent the bread of life. Figs was to Israel what wheat is to our nation. When we say bread, we're not talking about physical bread. We're talking about provision. We're talking about food. And so those figs pointed to the provision of God from both a physical and a spiritual standpoint. Those figs were to sustain physical life, but in type also represented provision for our spiritual life. The bread of life that came down from heaven, Jesus Christ. That's what it was symbolic of. And throughout the scripture, you'll find the fig tree symbolizes prosperity, well-being, and security. And especially when you're sitting under, it, it mentions it in the Bible, having your own fig tree to sit under. That means you are really prospering. You're really in well-being, and it's on your land, so you are in security. It's the epitome of that. And so God promised them all their own, you know, uh, one president said a, a pot and every chicken and a donkey in every barnyard or whatever before he was elected. God is saying, I'll give you your own fig trees. Amen. In other words, they'll have the land to plant it on. They'll have their house there, everything they need. He'll provide for them totally. So it's very symbolic. And, and having your own or sitting under the shade of your own fig tree is, like I said, the epitome of safety, peace and security and well-being. So let's get back to the spies. Two of the 12 spies, Joshua and Caleb, said, We should go up at once and possess the land, for we are well able to do it. That was a spirit of faith. They seen what was going to happen if they let that continue. The 10 spies moaning and groaning and complaining and all negative and everything. But the other 10, they said, We're not able to take it because the inhabitants are stronger than us. And whether you realize or not, that was the spirit of Antichrist. One of the ten spies' name was Sethur, S-E-T-H-U-R, and he was from the tribe of Asher. And what's interesting about the Hebrew language is uh, the, the Hebrew alphabet is also the Hebrew numbers. The numbers and the alphabet intermix. And so they're also, the numbers are also the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, so Hebrew names would have a numerical value. If you had a Hebrew name, it had a numerical value. And the name Sethur in the Hebrew alphabet has a numerical value of 666, which according to Revelation is the spirit of Antichrist. Now, I don't know if he was the ringleader. I don't know if he headed that bunch up, but there was a definite, definitely the spirit of the Antichrist was in that bunch. And so, you know, they're like, we can't do it. We won't do it. It's impossible. They're bigger than us. They got more weapons than us. And they were defying everything that God said that they could do. And that's the spirit of Antichrist. When you refuse to obey the word of God, that is the spirit of Antichrist. He's involved in that decision. And whenever you say we can't or we won't or we don't want to, that's, that's rebellion against God. That's exactly what they were doing, and that was the spirit of Antichrist. The ten men that made that decision to not go in affected the entire nation of Israel. 
And I really think that's why Moses, God told Moses to pick ten leaders. He thought they'd be responsible enough to go in. But it affected their own families for generations to come. And, and, you know, people make decisions like that all the time without considering the effects that it's going to have on other people. Corporate leaders do that sometimes. They'll make a decision and it has an adverse effect on their employees. They lose a benefit. They don't get a raise or different things. But it affects them all the way down. People leave churches all the time because they didn't like something that was said or the way that something was being done. And, and they say, I'll just find another church. But they usually don't. But here's what's sad. They never considered the effect that it would have on their children or spouse. And that's that stinking pride again, the devil using pride in your life to, to get you to make bad decisions like leaving church. It's a bad decision to leave a church. Uh, or let's say it this way. It's a bad decision to leave church because my wife and I left churches before. But we always found another one. And it was always better. And it also helped us to grow more. So there's times when you will leave church. But anytime you leave a church in a rebellion, you are in trouble. But not only that, you affected your family. And so these people say, well, I'll just find another church. And so they go and they don't find another church. They might look a couple weeks or something, but they don't find another church. And now they're out of church. And now the, the person that made the decision, whether it was the husband or the wife, doesn't make any difference. The other spouse is out of church. And the children never darkened the door of another church. Now, what did you accomplish by that? Not you, but you know what I'm saying. So we need to consider the impact of our decisions. Not just how it affects you or how it makes you feel, whether it's get, uh, leaving a church or leaving a job or leaving anything else. How is this going to affect my spouse? How is it going to affect my family today, tomorrow, next year, five years from now? What effect is this going to have? And that needs to be considered before you make decisions like that. Amen. That was all free, too. Every once in a while, I throw in something free. The rest of this, you got to pay for. But anyway, <laughs> we need to consider the impact of our decisions before we make them. And if you're married, you don't do all the decision making. You make those decisions together. Now, if there's a tie, sorry, ladies, but... The husband is the tiebreaker. It goes his way. That's the way God set it up. Amen? You can talk to each other, argue with each other, rationalize everything. But if you can't reach an impasse, or if, you can't, if you're at an impasse, then you go with the husband's decision and you pray for him. You pray he's right. <laughs> Amen? Because right or wrong, that decision is going to impact the whole family. Hallelujah. But they actually insulted God that day by not trusting in him enough to go into the land. God says, I've already given it to you. It's yours. All you got to do is go in there and possess it, and I'm going to do all the work. I'm going to make it happen for you. But you got to show me enough faith to trust me and go in there and do it. Amen. But they were, in essence, saying that God wasn't able to give Israel the land like he said he did. That's what they're saying by saying we're not going in. They're bigger than us. They've got more weapons. The land that swallows us up. And, you know, instead of measuring giants that day, they should have been weighing grapes, figs, and pomegranates. Amen. 
Well, yeah, there's giants in the land, but check out these grapes. Check out these pomegranates. Check out these figs. They're in the land, too. And God said he's giving it to us. I ain't worried about no giants. But they did. They worried about the giants. And, and instead of saying they couldn't, they should have been saying they could. Instead of saying the giants were too big or too strong, they should have been saying, my God is bigger and my God is stronger. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. But this is, you know, this is the trap we fall into when we start going by what we see rather than walking by faith. That's what, that's what walking in the steps of faith is all about. God gave him the first step. He said, go in and spy out the land. Come back and tell Israel what, they, what you've seen. Plant the vision in the rest of the nation. Then step number two I'll give you will be to go in and conquer it. And when you take that step and you cross the river, I'll tell you exactly who to conquer first and how to do it. And Jericho was that first city. This generation didn't go in to see it. But the next generation went after these all died out in the wilderness. And they went in and God says, now, step number three, march around the city seven times. On the seventh day, march around the seven times. On the seventh time, shout. That's all he told them. What's step four? You just do that and shout. Step four was God's because when they shouted, the walls fell. And God caused them to fall. So you see, you got to do it by steps. Walk in the steps of faith. If God told you to, to quit your job, and now please don't quit your job unless you know God told you to quit your job. That's step one. All right, what's step two? Do step one. Yeah, but I'm kind of afraid. That's why you have to trust me. Do step one, I'll give you step two. And God will walk you all the way to the fulfillment of that vision that he gives you. Hallelujah. I'm trying to look for a place to quit here. It's already noon. But anyway, God says to the Israelites, they said, no, we ain't going in. He said, okay, you don't have to. As a matter of fact, you ain't going in now. <laughs> Amen. He says, you're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, and that's where you're going to die because that's where you're going to find your carcasses. And the next generation is going to go in. But you know what? Joshua and Caleb are going to lead that generation. And that was great. I mean, good for Joshua and Caleb. But you know, they had to wander around with them crybabies for 40 years, listen to all that complaining and moaning. I, I wish I was in Egypt. I wish I'd have never left. Uh, there's not enough meat. There's not enough water. It's hot. It's cold. They had to put up with that for 40 years. Poor pastors. I mean... <laughs> but anyway, the, the ten that went into the land, they kept saying, we saw this and we saw that, and they saw us like we were grasshoppers. They never even seen them because they were spies. They were hiding. So they didn't know how the giants seen them. Uh, for all they know, if the giants really seen them, they would have been trembling in their pants. Amen? But if you want to walk in the steps of faith, then you can never go by what you see because what you see is scary sometimes. Amen. You can't walk by sight. You got to walk by faith and one step at a time. I mean, that's what's going to get you through because if you've seen the whole picture, you, you probably wouldn't want to take another step. Uh, when you walk by sight, that's faithless. There's no faith in walking by sight. If you can see it, you don't need faith to get it, right? But that's why these people didn't go in. Rather than consider the promise of God and what he said that I've given this land to you, go in and possess it, 
They relied strictly on what they saw. And I don't know what you need right now. I'm closed right now. I don't know what you need right now, but I can tell you where to get it. It's right there in your promised land. It's right there in your Bible. That's your promised land. Every promise God ever made you is right there in that Bible. You, you need to find it. If you need healing, that healing is in your promised land. Find it. Meditate on it. Get it in your heart and possess it. If you have lack, you ain't making the ends meet at the end of the month. You need some prosperity. Find it in your promised land. Meditate on it. Get it in your heart. And then possess it. God will make a way. I don't see how that's going to help me. Just do what God said. Take the first step. Enter the promised land and get it in your heart. And then he'll do the rest. He'll make a way somehow. And you might not like the way. He might get you 10 hours overtime next week. But if that's what it takes to get you what you need, then you got to be willing to do it. That's your possessing that land. Amen? Hallelujah. Take it by faith, one step at a time. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank and praise you for the word that's come forth today. God, there's a lot of good things in there for us to glean. We thank you, Lord, that all the things that you show us in the word are within our reach. Everything that you said we could have, we could have. Whatever you said we can be, we can be. Whatever, whoever you said we are, we are. We just have to grasp it, possess it, take it. In Jesus' name. So we thank you and praise you. I, I pray for everyone that has a need out there today, Lord. We know that you already made the provision. You are Jehovah Jireh. You're the God that sees the need in advance and provides for it. They just need to get into their promised land, find it, and take possession of it. We thank you and praise you. That's exactly what these, is going to be happening this week as these people go forth. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Thank you, and God bless your Facebook. If you like this message today, hit the share button. We'd appreciate that. Get the word out. It might, might be able to help somebody. See you next Wednesday. This concludes this message. Thank you for listening. We pray that it's been a blessing to you. For more information about FFC or its ministries, please contact the church office. God bless you, and remember, Jesus is Lord.